This is the second week in our series, The Miracles of Jesus, the transformative power. We're looking at these events that take place specifically through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, if you're visiting with us today for the first time, you may not know, the same text that we are using on Sunday mornings in worship between now all the way to the season of Advent will be the same text that we're also using in most of our adult Sunday school, our Bible study classes that meet on Sunday morning. So if you would like two opportunities to explore these texts, two opportunities to learn, another opportunity to disagree about something I say, this is a great time to do it. And if you are not a part of one of those classes, we're happy to make those introductions and find one that's a good fit for you and your interest that you have, the passion that you have as we learn together and learn what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, it's very important, you know, to have that right toolbox, all that you need to get the job done. Now, before I came here as pastor, we lived in Dandridge, and we had this little place. We had a couple of horses, and one day I went out to do some work at the barn, and I threw, I thought, all the tools that I needed into this five-gallon bucket and carried it out there, and I'm working on something. I really can't remember what it was, and I reached down to grab the hammer because you always need a hammer, and there's no hammer. I know I put a hammer here. I'm looking around. I'm digging in the five-gallon bucket. It's a big, I can't find the hammer. I look around, can't find the hammer. I turn around, and I find the hammer. And it's in the horse's mouth. The horse's name is Wonder. Uh, we are foster parenting Wonder at the time. He was a racehorse on the track in Kentucky, and he just didn't have what it takes to be a successful racehorse. What he had was incredible curiosity. And now it's like, oh no, am I? You don't want to have to chase a horse. You can't chase a horse down to get your hammer back. You got to have those right tools. I needed that one to do the job. And as we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, there's a set of tools that we need, whether it's Matthew or other places in Scripture, where we have to ask the right kinds of questions, and we don't always use the same tool with the same biblical passage. There are times when we need to know about the historical context. We need to know who's in charge. We need to know what government's like. We need to know whether people are living happy lives or, or tough lives, whether they're slaves, whether they're free. There are all these historical questions that we have to ask. We have to ask that tool. You have to use that tool to ask the right question to really understand that particular text. There are other times we need to know something about the original language in which it was written. We have these wonderful English translations. They don't always say the same thing. And sometimes we have to go back and look at the various meanings that the words would have meant at that time, especially when it comes to words that have multiple meanings, just like we have in the English language. Sometimes it's about economics. We have to know where these people are, what their life was like, and what the economic system was like, where they were living, and how difficult it was for them. Sometimes it's even just the way the story is told, the pattern in the story that appears more than one place in Scripture. For example, the story of Abraham and Sarah and their desire to have a child, and now they're elderly and it's never happened, and we have this wonderful message from God that they are indeed going to have a child. And the way that story is told comes up more than once throughout the rest of Scripture. And as you begin reading it, for example, the parents of John the Baptist, 
There are echoes of that story that you're supposed to grab hold of and know and understand. There's a pattern that's there that's already revealing something about these people. They aren't being punished. Instead, this is an opportunity for what God is going to do in their lives. Well, there are a couple of tools I want to pull out of the toolbox this morning as we are looking at a miracle in Matthew chapter 8. The first one is where it occurs. And that is, we don't just see these stories in isolation, not just the stories in Matthew, any of them that we are reading. We don't just see them in isolation, but we also have to pay attention where this story occurs. And I'll just give you this example. The story that we have today is in Matthew chapter 8, but you can read the same story, the same miracle in Mark's gospel, but it's in Mark chapter 1. Why is it now, and and we're very sure Mark's gospel was written first, why has Matthew held this story until now? Why has he placed it where it is? So we have to ask sometimes, what's in front of this story, setting it up, and what comes after this story? So that's one of the questions, is where it occurs within that book of the Bible. The second tool that we're going to use isn't about where it occurs in the book of the Bible. It's just where it occurs. It's about geography. Where does this story occur? And you may be surprised to know there's such a thing when we're reading Scripture as theological geography. It's not everywhere, but there are a few geographical places that when you get to that kind of geography, or maybe I should say topography, it's not my field, When you get to that, you should start asking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Usually when we're at this kind of place, something special happens. For example, a mountaintop. When people go to mountaintops, they tend to have these encounters with God that challenge them and change them. I've heard some of you talk about it. You like coming to church? but you have no problem telling me the closest you feel to God isn't when I'm preaching, it's when you're in the mountains. I understand. Well, that's one of these. Remember Moses going up on the mountain? Remember the smoke and the fire that's there and the people are afraid to approach and they're even warned. Don't, if you touch the mountain, you might actually die. And Moses goes up on this mountain and he has this incredible encounter with God more than once because one time when he comes down he is so angry when he comes down from the mountain and he sees what's actually happening that he takes these stone tablets with the ten commandments and and throws them to the ground he's got to go back again and god gives him these commandments now that i have set you free let me teach you how to stay free Let me teach you what it means to be the people of God and what it means to live together and to see a whole nother reality, to take just a taste, a glimpse of God's vision for what life for all of creation was supposed to be. And as Moses comes down from the mountain, his face is glowing. Do you remember that from one of your Sunday school lessons? His face is glowing because he has been in the very presence of God. And that's where we encounter this word, the Shekinah, the glory of God, the presence of God, the the heaviness of God. And 
There's something about Moses that's changed. And so he puts a veil on. When you read this story in the Old Testament, the implication is clear. Moses puts on this veil because the people are afraid. He has been in the very presence of God, and they don't quite know what to do with that. They're not quite sure what that means, and they're afraid to be near him. And so he puts this veil on to hide the glow the residual presence of God that has changed him. What's interesting is as we move to the New Testament and Paul recalls this story, he gives us another way of reading and understanding it. That Moses puts a veil on, not just because the people are afraid, but Moses is afraid. He's afraid that they will see the glow fading. And disappearing. That the change that took place on the mountain isn't a permanent change. That being in the presence of God hasn't altered him completely, certainly hasn't altered him permanently. And if they see that fading, how will they respond to him? And so we open up in Matthew's Gospel, and in chapters 5 and 6 and 7, where do we find Jesus? On the mountain. And where are the people who have come out to hear him? They are on the mountain with him. The disciples are there, and a crowd is there, and they are sitting at his feet, and they are listening. They are becoming disciples. They are learning, and the word disciple just means a student. They are sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him. And he talks about the law. He talks in a way that all of a sudden they realize, wait a minute, is this the new Moses? Because he talks about the law, he'll say, well, you have heard that it was said. And then he doesn't go to the letter of law, but the intent of the law. Wait a minute, this is... This is what God was really trying to do in your hearts. And, and he redefines righteousness. He redefines being a follower of God and being someone who loves God. He redefines what it means to be rich and redefines what it means to be poor. He redefines what it means to be neighbor. He redefines what it means to interact with people we love and people we are afraid of. He redefines how we respond to enemies, even 20 years after the event. And we struggle with that. We have a picture in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 of Jesus and his followers on the mountaintop and enjoying life, and they are learning, they are studying. And what a privilege it is. And we love to study. I remember a few years ago hearing a survey about people who study the Bible and Knoxville was at the top of that national list. People who love Bible studies. We love, I see some of you shaking your head, we love to study the Bible. It's so much easier to study the Bible than to live the Bible. Have you noticed that? It's so much easier to study the Bible than to practice what's there. And it really is a privilege as we are studying the Bible and learning to be a disciple. Uh, 
it's a spiritual discipline of study. And typically we have these kinds of issues that are raised as we are studying the Bible. Repetition, that we keep coming back to it, even if we're not quite sure what it is, we begin to have within us this, these ingrained habits that change our way of thinking, our way of responding, channeling our minds in a new direction. Concentration, centering our minds, clearing out the clutter, learning to be in the present at the moment and asking questions that can be life-altering, which is difficult. Even as we're sitting here studying and learning in this moment, just lunch, it's not lunchtime yet. Don't worry about what you're going to have for lunch. Listing off all the things you need to do this week, all the tasks that have to be done and phone calls that have to be made. No, for a moment, we are concentrating. There's that comprehension step. You know, we have occasionally that eureka moment where suddenly we get it. Suddenly it seems like we connect the dots. Suddenly the parts are all there together. I finally understand. And then those moments of reflection where we start to redefine the significance, wait a minute, of, of what I've learned. It's, it's not just while I'm here, it's, it's also while I'm at work. Wait a minute, this lesson that I've learned from Jesus, how Jesus responded also, it's, it's about how I treat people at work. It's about how I treat people at home. Wait a minute, this, this is about these other areas of my life. And I want to say before we get to this passage in Matthew chapter 8, this is such an enjoyable part of being a follower of Jesus, sitting on the mountaintop. It's such a great part. It is relaxing. It is invigorating. It's at times when we feel loved and we're having those moments where, oh, I'm starting to understand what it means to be made in the image of God. I'm starting to understand God's love. I'm starting to understand some of these biblical principles. I feel like I'm starting to pull my life together in a way that's going to be more pleasing to God. And in result, it's going to be, it's just going to fit better with the people that God has brought into my life. But Moses had to come down off the mountain. And we turn to Matthew chapter 8 and notice this. When Jesus had come down from the mountain, great, cow, great crowds followed him. I firmly believe Matthew has saved this story till now. And he's going to add a couple of other miracle stories with it. Because it's so important for us to understand what it means to come down off the mountain. That we don't get to stay on the mountain. In Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, we begin to glimpse and understand and have those eureka moments of who Jesus really is. Wait a minute. This is a prophet. Wait, wait, wait. This is more than a prophet. Jesus is now redefining our entire relationship with God. He is redefining righteousness. He is redefining what it means to be human. He is redefining how I'm relating to people I like and people I don't like. It's, this is now about ethics and morality and theology. And it just, oh, it's, just, it's hard and it's deep and it's tough and it's fun. And, and now he comes down from the mountain. And the crowds come with him. And there was a leper. That's a good translation. You can play with it a little bit. And there was pain. 
there was heartache. There was a family that was torn apart. There was someone who lost their job. There was someone who lost their community. There was someone who could never go home again. There was someone who could not approach strangers, could not approach people he knew. There was someone who suffered every day. There was someone who had no hope for a cure. There was someone who had no medicine that can make it better. There was someone who wondered, how long can I last? There was someone who wondered, can it get any worse? And when Jesus had come down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And there was a leper who came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Isn't that a great sentence? If, if you want to, you can do something about it. And there's, there's honesty. There's longing. Out of all of the people who have been on the mountain, is this the first one who really recognizes who Jesus is? is isn't that interesting? All these people who have sat with Jesus on the mountain, and now it's someone who is in pain, who's lost it all, who really understands this is who Jesus is. Lord, if you choose, Lord, if you desire, Lord, if you want to, you can make me clean. Mark makes a big deal about this too. So does Matthew. He stretched out his hand and he touched him. This is where we go back to another part of the toolbox and we learn about the culture in which they live. Jesus shouldn't do that. You, you don't touch lepers. It, and the word lepers, it could be all kinds of skin diseases that are communicable. That you just can't go, to, you can't go get a shot for this, all right? If you're diagnosed with one of these diseases, you're out because once it spreads, it spreads. And who knows who's going to get it? And, and it's just tough. And Jesus touched him. We know he doesn't have to because Jesus will heal other people without touching them. And when's the last time this man was touched? When's the last time he felt that welcomed? That included. He stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I do choose. I wish it. I will be made clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. I want to take this in a direction that's a little different from what we're doing in Sunday school. I want to ask this question. We all want a miracle. We're drawn to the miracle stories. We all want a miracle. 
There's a part of us that believes in miracles, and there's a part of us that struggles with that. Well, that's, that's about faith and being a disciple. Sorry. We, we all want a miracle. There are times you're going to see in Matthew's gospel where Jesus responds because someone has shown faith, and there are times when Jesus responds, and there's nothing said about that person's faith at all. It's about the compassion that, and the love that Jesus has. We all want a miracle. Maybe it's for yourself. Maybe it's for someone that you love. Uh, maybe it's for a situation that you find yourself in. We all want a miracle. But here's the question. But are we willing to be part of someone else's miracle? Jesus comes down from the mountain. How far does he get? 20 steps? Tenth of a mile? Half a mile? How far does he get before he faces reality? Can't just talk about God. You can't just talk about ethics. You can't just talk about theology. You can't just talk about loving your neighbor and loving your enemy. Not once you come down from the mountain. Not once you walk out of the Sunday school class. Not once you walk out of the sanctuary. Once you go, you're in the real world. You can't stay on the mountaintop. You can't. And we're not supposed to. But do we really believe what we have studied? Do we believe what we have prayed? Do we believe what we have encountered and what we have confessed and what we have sung? Do we believe it enough to practice it? So sometimes when you come down from the mountain and you decide you're willing to be part of someone else's miracle, it can cost you a great deal. That's clear. It's going to be clear in the life of Jesus. It's going to be clear in his, the life of his disciples. I'll give you one example if, if you move to uh, the book of Acts. And early in the book of Acts, they are on a mountaintop. They weren't sure. Jesus leaves, and they're told to wait for 10 days. I can't imagine their fear. I can't imagine their excitement. Wait, wait, wait until the promise of the Father comes to you, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when that moment happens, they can't miss it. The rushing mighty wind, the tongues of fire, the languages, they're spilling out into the street. They're proclaiming the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And not just hundreds, but thousands are responding to this good news. They are on a mountaintop. And Peter and John decide, you know what you do when you're on the mountaintop? You go worship. That's what you do. You express your grace. And so they decide to go to the temple. And as they're going to the temple, they meet a man in need. Life. Pain. Outcast. What's my day going to be like? How am I going to get enough food? Will I have food today? Will I make it to the next day? How long is my life going to be? A man who cannot walk. He's a beggar sitting at the gate called Beautiful, asking for alms, asking for people to give him anything. This is his only hope of subsistence. And they look at him. And you know the words, silver and gold have I none, say Peter. Wish I did, I don't have any. 
but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And his life is changed. Someone else gets a miracle. And you, if you stopped at that moment, it seems like they're still on the mountain. If you stop at that moment, it just seems wonderful. If you stop at that moment, you say, that's what I want. I, I want to be a part of someone else's miracle. And you keep reading. And they are arrested. Keep reading. They're thrown in jail. Keep reading. They're persecuted. Keep reading. They say, you stay like this. You keep doing this kind of stuff. You're going to be back here again. And we're telling you, stop talking about Jesus. You can't stay on the mountaintop. We know that. And when you come down, it's time to decide, do I really believe what I've studied, what I've learned, what, what I focused on, what I concentrated on, what, what I finally had, a, a couple of eureka moments, and, and I think it's changed my life, and now I'm reflecting on it, and I turn the corner, and there it is, pain and struggle and hurt. What? would Jesus do? Last week we were on the mountaintop. It was in Waco, Texas, which isn't that lovely a place. But we were on vacation and we were visiting our daughter and son-in-law and we had multiple days of just being together and it really, it was a mountaintop, just having fun and laughing and eating. If you're going to be with them, you're going to have some serious discussions and you're going to have silly discussion and, and you're going to talk about books and movies and, and you're going to ride roller coasters and we even went axe throwing. Yeah. And it was our last morning together. And we had saved it, uh, we, had, we had planned out because, uh, well, we, there's this one breakfast place, it's called Cafe Cappuccino. I don't drink coffee, I hear they have coffee, but they have the best pancakes ever, right? And so we've parked the vehicle and we're walking across the parking lot. We're on, I thought we were still on the mountaintop. I didn't know we had come off the mountain yet. We're walking across the parking lot. I'm looking down at my phone and I hear Melissa say good morning to someone that we're passing. And I, I just wasn't paying any attention. You know, as a pastor, you're supposed to be fairly nice. And I just, I just, I go good morning like that and look back down. I didn't even look at who I said good morning to. And we passed. And I heard this voice, a woman's voice, and she said, excuse me. And I turned around and she said, interesting question. Are you afraid to talk to homeless people? Well, the answer is no. And so I turned around and I introduced myself and I asked her her name and we talked for just a moment. And we're on a mount. It's our last breakfast together. We're not going to see them for months. Pain. Hurt. How long am I going to be this way? Am I going to have food today? Am I going to have food tomorrow? So we had breakfast with Peggy, and uh, 
We had pancakes. She had a BLT because that's what her mother used to make for her in Florida. And she's been homeless for a year. And she moved to Waco because she has a child, and, and her youngest child has been adopted by someone else, but she wanted to be close to her child. And, and we had to make a decision. I didn't even look, I probably owe them an apology. I didn't look at the rest of my family to even ask if they were okay with Peggy having breakfast with us. We just did. And I'll confess, not because I wanted to, but it sure seemed like the thing that Jesus would do. We all want a miracle. We aren't through with those yet. We're going to journey through them all the way to Christmas time. My question today, are you willing to be part of someone else's miracle. It might cost you a lot, Peter and John. It might cost you a few minutes, what seems like an inconvenience that turns out to be an incredible blessing. Remember Peggy this week and pray for Peggy. She needs a miracle. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we open our hearts to you. Thank you for the chance to study, to learn, to ask questions, to sit at your feet, to view our neighbors differently, to view our culture differently, to see opportunities, to, to be resurrection people. And would you help us to slow down and be in the moment long enough to be your hands, your feet, acts of love and kindness. Maybe even part of a miracle for someone else because that's who you are so make us more like you in Christ's name we pray amen well we're going to continue singing and worshiping and in these moments we're going to give you the chance to reflect and what's God saying to you um if you've never had this experience of inviting Christ into your life and becoming that person who sits at the feet of Jesus and learns about life and purpose, we give you that chance to invite Christ into your life. Would you give us the honor of praying with you and talking with you about what it means to follow Jesus? Or perhaps you've been a follower of Jesus for quite some time. You've just been looking for a place to serve. Uh, you've been feeling that nudge and you're ready to say yes to a new adventure with Christ, we give you a chance. Would you please stand as we sing together? Mm -hmm.